everyone, and welcome to IJ Notes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes to explore the work of journalists around the world. I'm Taylor with the IJNet team. In the fifth episode of our journalism and mental health series, I interview Hannah Storm to discuss the intersection of gender, sexual harassment, and mental health. Hannah is the director and CEO of the Ethical Journalism Network and an independent media consultant focused on gender-based violence and gender-sensitive reporting. Prior to joining EJN, Hannah spent over a decade reporting around the world for publications like BBC and Reuters. She then served as the director of the International News and Safety Institute, where she worked on critical security challenges for journalists at top news agencies around the world. In 2018, in the midst of the Me Too movement, Hannah shared her own experience with sexual assault and recently spoke up about how this and other events in her career had an effect on her mental health. Today, she is outspoken on the need for the news industry to take mental health seriously and to promote a culture free from shame and full of support. Now tune in to our conversation. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you for joining us on IJ Notes. So we connected on Twitter after you saw one of our last episodes. And so to get started today, I just want you to kind of give us a little bit of your background and your own story and what led you to reach out and and want to talk to us about um, your own journey with mental health. Sure. So my name is Hannah Storm and I've been a journalist for 20 years, the last 10 years. Um, most of that I spent at an organization called the International News Safety Institute. My... Um, own story will probably come on to throughout this conversation, but ultimately I was diagnosed or I accepted a diagnosis of PTSD at the end of 2019 after finding myself in a situation where I was on the road to recovery and feeling able to accept that diagnosis. Now, a lot of my experiences of PTSD were formed by traumas I had during my journalism career. And what I had done and not really realized at the time when I was working for INSEE, this charity, is I had focused a lot on issues of safety and mental health and written a lot about them. When I finally found myself able to talk about my experiences, I realized that I had the language to be able to speak about it and also to be able to tackle some of the taboos that I'd seen in the industry for so long and that actually I have a relative privilege. I'm hugely grateful for that. Yes, what happened to me was awful, really awful. But I have a degree of privilege as a white woman working at a reasonably senior level of the media who's able to use her voice to say to people, you're not alone. And that's a privilege that I appreciate many, many people do not have in our industry. Great. That's really something we want our listeners to get from this podcast series is just understanding how widespread these issues are and really just understanding that you don't have to battle it by yourself, that there are a lot of people there battling the same thing with you and who are there to support you. And we really want to be able to connect you to the right support networks as well. Um, So why don't we dig in a little bit more into your own experience? Can you tell us a little bit more about your mental health journey, how it manifests for you, um, and sort of how you've come to cope with it over the years? Sure. So as I said, I was, I, I had a diagnosis of um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Actually, in my situation, it's complex PTSD, but that's kind of not recognized. But effectively, what it means is there was a series of traumas or one trauma that lasted for a long time that led to me 
having certain symptoms. Now, the thing with PTSD is what it effectively is, and I am not a clinician, so I caveat this conversation with that, is it's when you are exposed to life-threatening traumas or you witness other people exposed to life-threatening traumas. You can, you don't always, you can develop this thing called post-traumatic stress disorder. And there are a variety of symptoms that happen within that kind of framework. For me, what happened was a lot of my trauma started a long, long time ago. I was um, sexually assaulted um, twice, linked to my journalism uh, career. That in some way was also linked to Haiti. Now, I also need to say that the experiences I had, my trauma, were nothing like some of the people experienced in Haiti, particularly after the earthquake. So I visited Haiti for the first time in 2004 and went back again later in 2004. On the eve of my first visit there, I was sexually assaulted. And effectively, my second visit was also beset by degrees of trauma and things I witnessed, which were really dangerous and really difficult. And then I went back a third time in 2010 after the earthquake in January 2010. And the idea, I think, in some ways was that I was the only person in the newsroom that knew Haiti. But obviously, I'm now acutely aware that an earthquake decimates a country to an extent that you can never really know it. But also, it's, it's hugely... I feel very uncomfortable now saying that I could know a country that I'd only been to twice before as a person who doesn't come from that country. So, so there was a, a lot of different traumas there. In addition to that, unfortunately, there was a abusive relationship that I had with somebody I met through my journalism. So as you can see, it's a complex network of behaviors and traumas that, that got to this situation, which I then joined this organization, INSEE, um, shortly after the earthquake in 2010. And um, that was fantastic in many ways and allowed me to channel my experiences and my passions and my desire to promote safety in journalism. But what it also did was led to a degree of what we call vicarious trauma, which some people might be familiar with. And it's this notion that you're exposed to things vicariously. Um, most frequently, it's when you see graphic images on screen. But in my situation, it was dealing with some pretty grim stuff a lot of the time. And I got to a stage where I was struggling. The symptoms came about probably in 2018. Um, I had a couple of times where I was really not coping very well. And yet we become very adept at giving off the impression that we are coping. You know, my friends used to say, I, you know, I was acting like a kind of superwoman, doing everything, doing all the time, being everything to everybody, being a parent as well. And, and, and yet inside, I felt like I wasn't coping. And yet I was running this journalism safety charity. So I would be having flashbacks, which are very symptomatic of PTSD, where basically your brain doesn't feel what happens with PTSD is your brain wrongly processes memories. So the memories kind of get stuck almost in the surface where effectively something happens, a trigger, as we call them, something happens to make your brain and body feel like you're there again. So whether you hear something or you smell something, for me, it's noises or smells and sometimes seeing people who remind me of other, thing, other people. And um, so I was having flashbacks and I would be sweating and I would be like, my heart would be pounding and racing. Afterwards, I'd feel completely drained. I'd have nightmares. I'd have mood swings. I couldn't concentrate. That's quite difficult when you're trying to do a job. And I was managing to do a job on the surface and do it pretty well, actually. Um, and, and yet, inside, I was kind of, 
felt a little bit like I was imploding. And so at the end of um, 2018, I decided to leave INSEE and um, took a new job at the Ethical Journalism Network and also sought out this diagnosis finally when I realised I was getting better, but also when I realised I didn't feel ashamed as much in terms of accepting the diagnosis and crucially from the perspective of the person who abused me, I was often made to feel like I was crazy, bonkers, deluded, et cetera, et cetera. And that that would have, I was worried that would play into the arguments that this person was making against me. Yeah. Thanks, Hannah. I know these aren't easy things to talk about, but I really do think that it um, adds perspective for other people and, and really helps people who are experiencing similar things to to talk about these specifics. Um, so let's go into that notion of shame. I think it also pairs with these ideas of hypermasculinity and the need to be okay all the time. Um, you know, especially in this industry, that's how you move up. That's how you get assignments or promotions. Um, how have you seen these ideas playing out? So I think it's important to notice that shame really is a thing that holds people back when we're talking about mental health. And I think the other thing that's really important to note is that actually we have almost not fixated, but we focus quite specifically on PTSD as a news industry, as being the kind of the one thing to do with mental health that impacts on the media, right? But there is this vast spectrum of mental health issues that people have to deal with. And unfortunately for a lot of us, a lot of us don't have PTSD, okay? So that's great, right? It's really good that we don't have PTSD. But I think what I would say is that, you know, there is a taboo in our industry, although I would recognize that we are getting much, much better at speaking openly about mental health. And that's fantastic. But there is a taboo in this industry. And one of the things I've noticed time and time again with my colleagues, and in some ways has been exacerbated by the situation that we're currently living in with COVID, is that people are really worried that an admission of vulnerability is going to impact on their career prospects. So they're worried that, for instance, if they say, I'm not coping very well, somebody's going to say, right, we're not going to give you that deployment. We're not going to give you that promotion. This notion of hypermasculinity is really interesting, right? Because as an industry, we are quite resilient, and yet we're really poor at admitting vulnerability. And I think that part of that is to do with, and this is my personal opinion, because I'm not speaking for any organization here. Part of that is about the systemic kind of way our industry is. So, so we are white, we are cis male, we are straight, we are university educated. So if that is the default, and, and we are taught as people, if we identify with all those characteristics, we are supposed to be a certain way. If we deviate from that default, you know, by nature, we are more vulnerable, okay? If we then add the job vulnerability to a mental health vulnerability, which, by the way, we're more likely to have those mental health impacts if we fit within those marginalized groups, particularly our black colleagues at the moment, and, and historically as well, but we've seen that particularly recently, if we deviate from that, we effectively become what I call a liability, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, in 2012, after Lara Logan was brutally sexually assaulted in Tahrir Square, there was a big debate that went on about, should women journalists go to the front line? And we wrote a book called No Woman's Land, talking about the challenges and opportunities that women journalists faced on the front line, which I believe they strongly should be there. But the point is the gatekeepers of that conversation were predominantly white men and in some instances, white ex-military men 
who were the safety experts within an organization. So their default was, this is my experience and my identity and my perspective. And, and it's much harder for people to see different perspectives. So that is why it has been incredibly difficult for people to talk openly about why it's been difficult. People have felt held back. But why it's so crucially important, therefore, that when we have and we need organizations which are more diverse and more inclusive, we're able to create these safe spaces where people say, actually, I'm not coping very well. Because otherwise, our model of coping is the kind of behavior which we've seen too often in terms of people coming back from places or repeatedly going to places where they're traumatized, who then drink too much alcohol, who then engage in extramarital affairs or self-sabotaging behavior, who are aggressive in the newsroom. And that impacts not just on those as individuals, but in their home life and on our organizations and in our industry as well. Yeah. So you said that the language we're using to describe um, mental health has been changing in the industry um, over the past several years. Can you give us some specifics? How do you see that change playing out? Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, it's taken a while for safety to become part of a conversation as well. And I do think that although we're getting much better at talking openly about mental health, there is still a bit of a hill to climb. What I would say is that we have focused on fairly kind of niche terms like PTSD. And I was talking recently about this notion and we've often focused on PTSD, as I said, about the just the, the white male war correspondent. We don't talk about how PTSD impacts local journalists more, for instance, or how PTSD can impact women journalists who are subjected to gender-based violence. We don't also talk about the PTSD that can come as a result of covering road traffic accidents or murders where effectively journalists are first on the scene but PTSD itself does only affect a smaller group of people what we talk less of is that other side of the spectrum of mental health so so less about stress and anxiety less about vicarious trauma less about depression less about what some people call burnout and I think that I'm struggling with the terminology of burnout because burnout for me implies a degree of blame it implies that you are responsible for something happening to you. Whereas actually the conditions in which you're working are often so untenable and so deeply problematic and stressful that it's not your fault. I think as storytellers, it's hugely important that we're able to use the right kind of terms and, and give it context and, and talk about how much it impacts people. And one thing I'd just like to bring up in terms of language now is something that's not a mental illness but it's something that is really really important I think and it's called moral injury and moral injury is this notion that we all effectively have a moral compass or a code of ethical conduct that we subscribe to things that we believe are right or wrong sometimes as journalists we are forced to witness something partake in something or fail to prevent something that transgresses those moral codes it's effectively the difference between the duty to report and the obligation to help particularly when you are a journalist who is responding to people in difficult situations and that that can have an injury to you it can create an injury so a kind of bruise on the soul as anthony feinstein's called it. and i think that's probably a 
a, a, a definition from elsewhere as well, but it's the sense that it can make you feel guilty and it can make you feel shame that you haven't been able to help people enough. Yeah. And we really hope that the types of conversations like we're having now um, continue to change the way that we talk about these things. So what can newsroom leaders, editors, and others in the industry, um, what can they do to help people struggling with mental health, struggling with burnout, depression, moral injury? You know, whose job is it? And, um, and what can they do? I think that we are never really going to be in a situation where people can speak openly and safely about the mental health concerns they have unless we really, newsroom leaders, really address the lack of inclusivity and diversity in the newsrooms. So that's really, really important. In the interim, what newsroom managers and leaders can do is they can really model better behaviour and they can really engage in role modelling. And that means things like, you know, not sending emails at peculiar times of day. Um, it means communicating really well about policies around mental health. Sometimes it may be appropriate for managers themselves to talk about their experiences of mental health. Sometimes it might not. But certainly what we found from um, conversations with people is that people tend to feel more able to come forward to talk if people they admire or recognize as people in positions of relative privilege are able to talk openly about their experiences too. So I think those are all really important. I think empathy is massively undervalued. I think empathy is often the first thing to go when we're up against it or we're, you know, we've got a tight deadline or it's a really stressful story. But checking in with people, particularly at the moment during COVID where we're not seeing people kind of in the same room very often at all, but checking in with people and really listening. And I think maybe in a way at the moment as well, understanding that maybe we're not achieving as much as we were in the past because there's lots of other things going on as well. What I would also say that I haven't touched on is that, you know, we've talked a lot about responsibility of newsrooms and news managers. I do fervently believe there are some things we can do ourselves to help our own mental health. In a world in which things are very uncertain, I think we can try to strive to control the things we can control and that's really kind of difficult sometimes but you know recognizing that we can't control other people's behavior recognizing that we can't control government policy as much as we might like to and as important as it is that we still hold governments accountable sometimes we can't control policy and that actually worrying too much about that expends excess energy now it's really easy to say that it's harder in practice you know, it's much harder to, to say to somebody who's not sleeping very well, well, can try and control what you can control. But I think the other thing that you can do is also, and it's back to this idea of parameters and setting kind of boundaries around your, your, your behavior, is that switch off. Let's find more ways of switching off. One of the biggest challenges I'm seeing at the moment across news media is the fact that people are hyper-connected in a still somewhat disconnected world. Okay, so we're on the phone and we're on the screen all the time. And that is taking an immense toll on our mental health. When we can shut off, move away from the screen, turn off, the, turn off your notifications, turn off your phone, find something else to do. If you can exercise, exercise. If you can hang out with family, hang out with family. If you can read a book, read a book, take a bath, whatever. Do something different, which is away from the screen. And that really, can, that really can help. So I think that it's really important to talk about 
the responsibilities of managers and newsrooms and the industry at large. But it's also really important to talk about how do we help ourselves as well. Yeah, these are all such important points, and they really give us an idea of how we can start to change things um, within the industry. Um, but like you said at the beginning, so none of this will change unless we you know, really start to take seriously um, and work towards diversity and inclusion in newsrooms. So can you elaborate how that fits into this conversation and sort of how um, it's so critical in creating an environment where mental health is taken seriously and openly discussed? Sure. And again, I caveat this with I am a white person and therefore I cannot speak from the perspective of somebody who is non-white. But I strive to be an ally in as much as I possibly can. What we know is that people who do not fit into the standard identities of people who have established our news industry. So as I mentioned before, you know, the, the cis male, white, university educated, straight people who are tend to be the gatekeepers of conversations and stories. If they don't fit into that, you're more vulnerable, not only in the way that, you know, perhaps your job is more vulnerable, but we hear less stories about people like that. We see less people in management who are non-white, who are female. So that's really important to recognize that people therefore perhaps don't feel more able to talk about their experiences so perhaps they suffer more in silence and crucially as we've seen recently in the the coalescing of the fact that black communities are much more impacted by COVID-19 and the the Black Lives Matter movement and the response to George Floyd's murder we have seen that black journalists bear an incredible and unique burden. And this is something that where we lack management of color and black management, we can't address that. We can't address that as well. And we can't be as empathetic as we might be. Yeah, Hannah, thanks for bringing that up. I think it's really critical that we talk about how um, these discussions about diversity and inclusion really form a critical piece of um, mental health in the newsroom. Um, And, you know, I want to draw attention to the fact that our last podcast episode, which was released a few weeks ago, was produced by our intern Donette, and she interviews Dr. Alyssa Richardson. And they discuss the specific mental health burden that Black journalists carry, um, especially right now in the midst of COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter and anti-police brutality protests. Um, So I really want to encourage listeners to go and check that out. So now I want us to switch gears a little bit, and I want us to talk about the specific mental health challenges that women journalists face. You shared your own experience with sexual assault and um, sort of how that impacted on you. And I want us to sort of discuss how you see this playing out in the mental health of women journalists who may have experienced something similar. I think it's really important to acknowledge that abuse and sexual assault and gender-based violence can have a real impact on people. I say people here because I recognize it happens to men too, but by and large, we're talking about women. I think that it's often something that we feel an extra shame for because it's something that impacts not just on us, but our bodies as well. And so, you know, there's this kind of sense of feeling like we're silenced. Now, I spent a long time not talking about my experiences. I was sexually assaulted And I was raped. So I was sexually assaulted twice in two different instances to do with my career. And I didn't talk about it for 14 years. And yet it 
motivated a lot of the work I did. So the No Woman's Land book I referred to earlier was motivated by a need to talk about it and, and this awful situation that happened in Tahrir Square to, to Lara Logan and other people's stories, but also about my stories. And I think that one of the things, the real interesting and insidious and awful impacts of this is that women in general are less heard in the news our voices are heard less our stories are told less and this silences us so if we are silenced then we cannot have the kind of multiplicity of media that we need and we cannot have these voices we're seeing this a lot and this is a slight kind of change to to exactly what i'm talking about here but we're seeing this a lot online you know we see a lot of journalists trolled abused harassed online and the idea is that they get shut up you know women are shut up and silenced and a lot of the time the harassment becomes rapidly sexualized the thing with me too is that it was almost like a clarion call for people it was in fact a clarion call for people to be able to say you know this happened to me as well but it didn't still allow everybody to feel like they could speak openly about their experiences. It's really, really scary to speak openly and say, I was raped or to say I was sexually assaulted because within our industry still, and within our society still, there's an awful lot of blame that is thrown around. And there's an awful lot of, well, why didn't you? Or what were you thinking of? Or victim blaming, basically. Now I, I really loathe the word victim as well. In my instance, I, you know, I know there's legal reasons sometimes for using the word victim, but it's this notion that, again, of kind of powerlessness, right? So I'd like to call myself a survivor. And that's, that's the kind of reference that, that I use. I think added to that, as I said several times, this industry where there are fewer women news leaders, there are often still challenges that women face traditionally, not always, traditionally, women tends to be the caregivers. Women, if they want to have children, they take time off work, right? So there are all these other challenges thrown into the mix as well that mean that sometimes the stresses faced by women are more difficult. If the people making the deployment decisions are not women, then it's they're the gatekeepers to the conversations and to the decisions. And therefore, we're not necessarily all of them able to see the perspective of women in terms of deployments and how they can look after them. And back to this liability idea that we talked about before, if being at risk of rape or gender-based violence means that you're less likely to be sent somewhere, that makes you a liability, right? So it's, it's a really difficult um, balancing act. I think more work needs to be done. There is some great work being done around the impact of women's experiences on them in the media. So the International Women's Media Foundation does fantastic work as well in this space. Um, we did a report a few years ago together called Violence and Harassment Against Women in the Newsroom, and it touched on some of the emotional impacts on women. But I don't think that this is addressed enough. And I'd also caution that, you know, when you start talking about this, sometimes you do feel, see people's eyes glaze over. Sometimes you, you see people going, oh God, she's on that gender thing again. She can talk about that again. So therefore what we really, really need again is allies. It's really, really important that we have good allies to amplify the stresses and pressures. And not just that, the brilliant perspectives that women can bring to the stories. 
Yeah, that's so important. You know, we need women in the newsroom and we need to make it a safe space for them. And I think this is just a really important conversation to have. Um, And you started to touch on this, but this idea of online harassment and trolling and, you know, sort of this constant burden for any visible woman on the internet. And we definitely feel it in journalism. Um, Do you have any advice for women who are feeling the effects of this on their own mental health? Um, You know, it might not be an outward assault or attack, um, but what would you say to women who still feel this, the effects on, on their mental well-being? Yeah, I think it's really important to note that, you know, online harassment in journalism does seem to, by and large, impact women. It does also impact members of other marginalized communities as well, those whom we've discussed already, rather. But I think that from the perspective of online harassment, let's not underestimate the fact that it can have a real toll on people. What often happens is, you know, you turn on your phone at a time where you have effectively have not got what I call the emotional flak jacket on. You haven't got your emotional flak jacket on. So you're vulnerable. You turn your phone on at maybe like the first time you wake up at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. or whatever. And you're inundated with this kind of just insidious hatred. So, so that's, that is affecting too. What I would say is also that just because it happens online doesn't mean that it's not valid. It's really important to recognize that threats in that space can have a detrimental impact on people. So don't feel shame for this happening to you. If you can, and it's the same with any element, anything that impacts on your mental health, one of the best things you can do is to find somebody you trust to talk to about it, to mention about, mention that it's happened, mention how you're feeling about it. There are lots and lots of other different things that can happen that, that can be done in terms of managing your social profiles, separating your personal from your professional profiles, talking with your work about what they're doing to support you. You know, some organizations have people who can help understand where the motivation for the trolling and behavior is coming from to help you again lock down your personal information it's really important to not put i think too much personal information online as well and i think that one of the other things that that i would say is you know again if you can take breaks from social it's really important too i I was giving some advice to somebody a while ago and I, i said look you know if there's anybody you can trust with your passwords online social media passwords you know facebook twitter instagram whatever do it and then i thought i don't know if i'd ever do that myself to somebody give hand over my passwords to somebody but if it gets really really difficult that's really important there is a difficult there's a slightly polemical issue around the whole kind of feed the trolls don't feed the trolls right because again if you don't feed the trolls so therefore you stay silent what it's effectively doing is it's reinforcing that notion that you should stay silent in the face of abuse but we do know that when you feed the trolls when you respond to these messages of hate it gives more fuel to that aggression so it's it's quite a difficult tightrope to walk that because I don't want anyone ever to feel like their experiences has been delegitimized by their inability to talk openly. But I do think that there's two things they can do in that instance. One is, as I say, talk to somebody they trust. And two is there is a degree of solidarity now within our industry where people 
come together. So Trollbusters does a lot of good work in this space where people come together and basically swarm on an experience. So they, so, so they kind of uplift somebody or support somebody or amplify somebody. You know, the, 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 the cumulative effect of more people saying this is not on, that we value this person, they're doing great work, is, is, can be strong as well. But I think, as I say, don't underestimate it. Just because it happens in the online world doesn't mean it's not going to have an impact on your health too, especially when it's something you can't see. Somebody's hiding behind something so you're not quite sure where the next shot is going to be fired from. That a, a, can be an unsettling thing as well. Yeah, these are really great resources, and we'll be sure to add them in the notes for the episode as well, so if anyone wants to refer back to those. So now, in the last few years, we've seen a greater desire for this discussion on mental health, um, like we're having now. Um, But at the same time, I think the challenges that journalists are facing and the expectations are really growing, um, and that's definitely been exacerbated by COVID. Um, So what's kind of behind that, and how do you see COVID having an effect on what's happening today? I'm really glad that we are able to talk about this because I think before COVID, we were facing almost a kind of perfect factor, perfect storm of factors. So there was, you know, relentless breaking news. There was a rise of populism. There was a rise of governments and leaders around the world criticizing journalists. There was a crisis of trust in journalism. There were falling ad revenues. There was an impact on employment. There were news organizations closing and jobs going. At the same time, we were hyper-connected and, and constantly having to figure out what was true in a world in which malinformation and misinformation and disinformation reigned. Okay, So there was this volume of voices that was just crazy. And so we were, there was so much we were dealing with. So even before COVID, I was speaking with colleagues who were really stressed, who were really anxious, who were suffering. COVID has exacerbated many of those factors. So COVID has given us even more pressure on ad revenues. Business model that is impacted by the fact that we've had to redesign decades of journalism in effectively what was days, jobs being furloughed, people who were doing certain types of news that just wasn't happening anymore. All of that while covering the biggest story probably of our lifetimes, while we were trying to figure out what was going on at home as well, while sometimes we were trying to homeschool or, or, or care for other people, while working in spaces that for a lot of people just weren't, you couldn't work in the spaces in which you were living. Plus the uncertainty of something which we couldn't see. So I've spoken with journalists recently and a lot of journalists who have gone to war zones and places like that have said to me, I found it easier to deal with reporting from a war zone because at least I knew where the next attack was coming from or how to take cover with covid it's practically invisible we don't know and it's totally unprecedented so there's that constant uncertainty which blends both lives so it blends our personal and our professional lives and and it's totally not right it's totally incorrect to say covid is the great leveler because we know it impacts on certain communities more than others but We have all been affected in some way, shape or form by this. Okay, so in some ways that can create some positive outputs and impacts for us, because it means that there's a degree of democracy when, for instance, we're we're talking about things, but it has created a vast uncertainty. And so we are seeing great amounts of anxiety, but we're also seeing 
a growing desire to address that because it's something that affects everybody in different ways. All right. Well, I could come up with more questions, but we should probably cut it off. So thank you so much, Hannah, for coming on IJ Notes and for sharing your story and, you know, a little bit about your own expertise as well. So if our listeners want to follow your work, can you tell us where we can find you on the internet? Um, And then if you have any ideas for resources for journalists who are struggling, um, where they can look to for support, um, we'd love to hear those as well. So I would say, first of all, thank you for having me. And secondly, I don't want anyone to feel like they're alone in this. This can be a really difficult conversation to have. People are struggling. So I think that, you know, first and foremost, if you need help, you're very valid to go and seek it. You ought to go and seek it. Find someone you can trust, as I've mentioned several times. If things are really acute, then you need to speak with your medical provider. I think a lot of news organizations have employee assistance programs, which basically allows access to counseling. There are some other organizations out there who are doing great work, like the DART Center, for instance, does a lot of work supporting journalists in the space between journalism and trauma. You can find me um, on Twitter at HannahStorm6. And um, at the moment, as I say, I'm the director of the Ethical Journalism Network. We do more work around ethical journalism, accountability, accuracy and such. But I also do have a space where I'm able to talk with people in the mental health and media area. And I was very grateful to Pointer to um, publish my piece about my PTSD experience. So that may well be something that people want to, to check out as well. But yeah, please don't suffer in silence. Um, Depending on which country you're in, there will be emergency lines for help. Um, But please do seek out the help that you need if you need it. And and also please know that, you know, this I'm hoping is a hopeful story and a helpful story. And that, you know, by speaking out, recovery is possible. It's totally possible. Even if you don't speak out, recovery is possible. But I want people to recognize that this, that recovery certainly is possible and you know we move forward we move forward not always in a linear way but we do keep moving forward if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to check out the rest of our series on journalism and mental health in other episodes we discuss asking for help how newsroom leaders can take responsibility for employee health tips for telling mental health stories and so much more We're so thankful to our lineup of amazing interviewees who have made the series possible. I want to take a moment to draw attention to work our parent organization, ICFJ, is doing on gender-based violence. They recently partnered with UNESCO to study online violence against women journalists. If you're interested in participating in their survey, check out the link in the episode notes. We encourage you to follow IJNet on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to see the latest resources and opportunities for journalists. I know the topics being discussed in this series are heavy, and if you found this content distressing or difficult to discuss, you're not alone. We've linked some resources in our notes, but there's always professional help available. Look for resources in your area, talk to friends and colleagues, and reach out if you need any help connecting to the right resource. Until next time, stay safe and take care of yourselves.